It's Friday, June 29th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Electric utilities in Pennsylvania are in a bit of a tough position. Their revenues are directly tied to how much energy is being consumed. This at a time when their customers are increasingly motivated to use as little energy as possible. The industry finds itself at a crossroads. Utilities are going to be around. But they want to remain relevant. They're used to being considered important. And so they're trying to think, you know, where's our place in this new clean energy economy? One major hindrance to companies that want to invest in clean energy, the Public Utility Commission limits their ability to recoup costs through the rates they charge their customers. But that's about to change. A new state law clears the way for what's known as alternative rate making. And that makes clean energy advocates very happy. It's encouraging the utilities to stop obsessing about selling electrons and start really understanding their role within healthy, safe, climate-friendly communities. We'll unpack the new alternative rate-making legislation on this episode. But first... You're hearing the sounds of finishing touches being put on a trails project years in the making... It's a former railroad tunnel built in the 1870s, and it's about to knock the Red Bank Valley Trail off of DCNR's top 10 list of critical trail gaps statewide. So water's going to be a little bit of an issue, so when we put the final trail in, we're going to build this up and actually make ourselves more of a ditch line. It took years of repairs and updates, but the Climax Tunnel is finally ready for its official opening in August. I paid a visit to the site earlier this summer to find out how the work was coming along. We're going to play you that audio right now. But first, just a quick heads up. This segment concludes with the story that I think you'll find very interesting and quite moving. In fact, you might want to have a handkerchief handy. It's pretty powerful stuff. Just a heads up. I'm Ron Steffi. I'm the executive director of the Allegheny Valley Land Trust. And the Allegheny Valley Land Trust owns the uh, uh, Red Bank Valley Trail that we're on right now and also the Armstrong Trail. And we're by the Climax Tunnel. The Climax Tunnel is about the halfway point on the uh, 41-mile Red Bank Valley Trail. Uh, it's at milepost 17. We're 17 miles away from the Allegheny River. And this is crucial because it's going to make a connection of the two sections of trails that are completed. Uh, it's a tunnel that's 528 feet uh, long. Uh, it was built by the railroad in 1876, and it bypassed. If they would have went along the stream like it does most of the way, it would have added another two and a half miles to the railroad system, but it also would have added five different sharp turns as it had to make a 360-degree turn, where here they were able to make a 90-degree turn going through, uh, going through the tunnel. How long has it been since this was in use by the railroad? The last railroad uh, train... Uh, went through here in 2009, and that's whenever they were recovering the rails and going out of here. And it had been used less and less the years be- before that as the coal market uh, went down and uh, other markets went, why there wasn't as much of a need for the railroad to haul anything to here or from here. So tell me about the, the tunnel project. When did, how long have you been working on this? What's the, what's the process been like? Well, the the process probably actually started in 2006, whenever DCNR made us uh, aware that uh, this was going to become an inactive railroad, and it, it took several years for the process to, to, to go through. But this was one of the first places they came to at the, uh, at the Climax Tunnel because it was very accessible. There's a state road that goes right next to it. Uh, so we purchased it, the railroad corridor from... Uh, 
uh, Buffalo and Pittsburgh Railroad in 2010. And then we started to, uh, the volunteers really pitched in and uh, they, uh, they made the bridges safe. They, they built trail. They've built over 40 miles of, uh, of trail and uh, with, with limestone chips to make it nice and smooth and, and compact. And then we started looking at the, uh, the Climax Tunnel, and we're probably starting to look at it in 2011 for funding. Uh, we had an engineering firm look at it, and they told us it would be $250,000 to rehab it. Uh, we started to do some work, and they upped it once we started doing work to $2.5 million. So they were off by a factor of 10. Uh, we use another engineer, engineering firm now. But the whole process was to get funding together and uh, the first funding we got was $263,000 to repair a hole in the roof where we were afraid that uh, we could lose the whole tunnel. So we made a repair there and then the uh, uh, next critical step was the portals which were in bad conditions because they see the freeze and thaw all the time that water was dripping all the time it would freeze in the winter time and you'd have stalactites going clear down to the bottom and stalagmites going halfway up to the top. So we, uh, we were able to get funding for $780,000 through TAP funding uh, that came through uh, PennDOT. We were able to uh, make the portals uh, secure. And in the meantime, we were also able to get uh, two grants from DCNR, each for $500,000. And um, it made it that we could make the rest of the inside of the tunnel secure. Plus, we decided that we needed to extend it 80 feet on the eastern end because there was uh, poor rock formations that had uh, the rocks cantilevered out. They could fall at any time without any uh, warning, and it would be a hazard uh, to the safety and health of the trail users. So right now we're in the process of uh, uh, putting the uh, top arches on that extension of uh, 80 feet, and then we'll cover it with earth, and uh, and then we'll uh, be almost finished with the project. We're going to make asphalt uh, surface going the whole way through. We'll add picnic tables so people can enjoy themselves inside the, uh, inside the table and relax. It'll be a cool place in the, uh, in the summer, literally not only cool to visit, but cool temperature-wise to be able to, to take a rest. Plus, it's mostly a little bit warmer in the winter times, except for uh, when the wind really picks up at times. So uh, we're looking at uh, finishing this up within... Uh, a month and a half and then have a celebration on uh, August 18th to open up the tunnel for uh, for use and that'll make a completed uh, um, trail that the whole way from Brookville to Ford City uh, so that'll be uh, something like 70 uh, somewhere around 70 miles of continuous trail in the area. What's the significance to you of, of being able to send all these trail users through this historic structure? What do you hope they'll take away from the experience in terms of understanding, you know, this, this part of the country, these communities along the trail, what's, what, what do you hope the experience will be like for trail users? Well, I, I think one of the keys is the, the volunteers that have done everything to, to make this happen. So they became invested in the area, and that's what you see in this area, that people, people are willing to work and put their back and their sweat and their equity into that. And it goes from father to son to, to the grandchildren and the whole way down through. And with the Climax Tunnel, they're going to be able to visit something that was built in 1876. There's going to be stories of great-great-great-grandfathers that, that helped build that or was able to have uh, worked on a railroad that went through here. But, but to me, it's, it's, it's a family activity. 
I had a granddaughter that was two and a half years old, and she died of uh, cancer. She only suffered for uh, a few days, and she survived for about a week longer. But uh, she lived in Massachusetts, but in those two and a half years, it became very early that uh, before she was walking, we'd take a, a wagon and pull a, a little child's wagon, and she would take books with her. And we had some benches along a certain part of the trail, and quite often the two of us would go out on our own and we would uh, travel this. It became a habit that she always wanted to take a wagon, and she'd pull the wagon until she got tired, and when she got tired, she got in the wagon, and it was time for me to, to pull her back. Well, uh, once she passed away, people wanted to donate to the trail since I'd done so much work on the trail. Uh, and they said, well, we want to donate money, whatever you want to do with it. So we looked at making pavilions and doing different things, and I didn't want it to be like a mausoleum. We didn't want that type of thing. But since she liked books, we decided to put up uh, a bench and a free little library. And the free little library is just a box. It's on top of a post, and it's uh, two miles away from the closest house. And we keep children's books in there, and it be has become a destination point where families travel to. They'll go there, put books in, take books out, sit at the bench, have a little picnic, uh, um, read stories there. And my grand, all my grandchildren really like to go there. My wife's a first-grade teacher. And she gives a test that's called a Dibbles test. It's a reading test where the student reads a test and she's somewhat graded on it, but also in a retention of what she just read. So this one little girl, she was always uh, sub-satisfactory. And um, about a year ago, towards the end of the year, she scored really high. My wife said to her, well, that's really great. Uh, are you reading more at home? And uh, she said, uh, uh, you know that trail by the... Uh, by the river someone took a post there and then put a box on top of it and then put books in front of it and we go down there a couple times a week and I'm able to get books and, and read uh, read books from there and she says I have one of the books that uh, uh, from there and she went and got it and it was brown bear brown bear which was a book that we put in there that I read to my granddaughter all the time so that's my story Sorry, I that's a beautiful story. story. Yeah. <laughs> that's a beautiful Me too. <laughs> it really is. But but you asked you asked about the trails. This, this this is part of it. Look at look how look how it affected someone that you'd never think that you're doing something. That it became an activity for the family to actually go to there, get something, and it helped her education. That to, who knows the difference it may be making because now she's bitten by the reading bug. Thanks a lot, Ron. You're welcome. Ron Steffi is director of the Allegheny Valley Land Trust, which owns the Red Bank Valley Trail in Armstrong and Clarion counties up in western Pennsylvania. The Land Trust is our co-host, along with the Red Bank Valley Trails Association, for a grand opening celebration being held at the Climax Tunnel in August. You don't have to wait until then, though, to get a peek inside the renovated tunnel. We've just posted a video featuring an up-close look at the extensive work that's gone into making the Climax Tunnel safe and welcoming for trail users. Red Bank Valley Trails Association President Sandy Matier is your tour guide in that video, which you'll find on our Facebook page and also on the PEC website. 
While you're there, be sure to sign up to attend the opening celebration on August 18th in New Bethlehem. We'll post the link in the show notes for this episode. You'll find all of it at the Peck website, PECPA.org. Governor Tom Wolf has signed new legislation giving the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission more flexibility in how it determines rates for electric, natural gas, water, and sewer services. Clean energy advocates are hailing the new alternative rate-making scheme as a win because it insulates electric utilities from some of the negative impacts of a changing energy marketplace and also mitigates the risks they take on by encouraging customers to use less energy. Here to help us understand how that works is PECS Senior Energy Policy Advisor, Alyssa Berger. Hey, Alyssa. Hello. Was that was that close? Was I somewhat in the vicinity yes. of, of the Yes. Okay. Let's cover it a little bit more. Walk me through the problem that this bill is, is supposedly addressing. Sure. We often look to utility companies for leadership on mm-hmm. energy efficiency, uh, but the, the problem is there's this sort of conflict of interest in play, I think, because of the way the companies are compensated under the rules as they currently exist. Companies aren't really incentivized to promote energy efficiency, uh, ideally. And and in some ways, there's almost like a perverse incentive to do the opposite insofar as, you know, the less energy you and I use, the less revenue they're making. So so what does the current rate-making model look like? How is it set up? And then how is that going to be changed with the implementation of uh, alternative rate-making? Sure. These are all great questions. And this really is a win for Pennsylvania's clean energy economy. Um, which I'll expand on in just a second. But the way you should think of HB 1782 is that it's enabling. The same way that commercial PACE legislation, that was also a recent win for um, clean energy and decarbonization in the state, it's going to enable us to do things. It doesn't mandate we do certain things. It just sets up the foundation for utilities to be able to invest in renewable energy and energy efficiency more easily. So basically... So so, so it's kind of taking the handcuffs off the regulators right. in a way, but yes. then uh, it's kind of on them to step forward. Exactly. But we expect that to happen. Yes. So the okay. utilities still need to take action, but now there's very clear guidance from the Public Utility Commission saying, we will allow you to be more progressive, to do these things, and we we want you to do them, but it's not requiring utilities to do anything. Um, but it is kind of paving the way. So th- the way to think about it is this will grant the Public Utility Commission clear legal authority to approve alternative utility rate-making mechanisms, which includes full revenue decoupling and performance incentives. And those incentives um, will allow utilities to, you know, um, change their offerings around energy efficiency, rebates, and, and that sort of thing. And what decoupling has to do with, and that's a term that gets thrown around frequently in energy, uh, in wonky policy circles, decoupling just means that traditionally utilities were set up, um, if you think of it kind of back in the early 20th century, um, to be monopolies on purpose. Basically, folks said, hey, we want people to have power. This is a reliability issue. We want people to be able to turn on the lights, hospitals to have electricity. So we are going to allow utilities to be monopolies so that they're not undercutting one another. Um, And this, in a way, kind of undermines a reliability question, right? Okay. But as technology has changed over all of these decades and we have this very real need to decarbonize given climate change, current and forthcoming impacts, we're asking utilities to change very quickly in a manner that they've never been asked to do. So it's like asking a dinosaur, you know, can you use an, an iPhone, if you will? 
And um, that's not to be pejorative or mean to utilities. It's just they were kind of – they. it's – it's known as the regulatory compact. Utilities were set out with a certain mission, and they weren't asked to be innovative companies, right, because they don't have real market competition. Right. So um, with this, what's interesting is what we're saying is utilities, for you to make your money back, it's not just about selling electrons to customers anymore because demand for electricity has actually plateaued. But rather, we're saying, hey, utilities, if you can get creative and you can get more people to do energy efficiency and you can do things like microgrids and renewable energy projects, we are going to, and I'm using air quotes for our listeners, we are going to reward you by saying that you are allowed to do those things. We want you to do those things and we will work with you so that it's financially uh, practical, feasible and good business for your shareholders and you know you as a company. Okay, so decoupling, yes. we're not going to have rates necessarily determined in this one-to-one way by usage. Yes. So what are some of the other mechanisms that we're potentially looking at? I saw performance-based rates. Yes, Explain exactly. Um, so the United Kingdom actually um, was sort of at the forefront of something called performance-based rate making, which, um, again, not to get too into the weeds or be too nerdy about it, essentially what it was doing was saying – the better that you're able to perform as it relates to grid reliability, you know, keeping your costs low and keeping in mind climate change, so doing things that really prioritize energy efficiency, renewable energy, etc., we, um, either a government structure or a public utility commission, are going to reward you. So that performance component could be anything, but really what's built into that, it's sort of insinuated, is a performance around climate-friendly practices and policies as far as the utility is concerned. So we've seen some states in the West, Nevada and California and a few other states have started to play with this idea. There's the Western Governors Association that wrote a paper on performance-based rate making. So it's it's a huge buzzword right now for utilities and the clean tech sector because if we can get the utilities to feel like they're a sexy Silicon Valley like tech startup – um, we will see them trying harder, and it will benefit customers as well as the climate. Okay, so let's talk about customers. Yes, then. And you mentioned that energy demand is, has plateaued. Right? Exactly. And this is sort of the this is the problem that utilities are dealing with. Exactly. Um, but in in making these changes, is there a way in which we're just kind of shifting the burden onto consumers, or will consumers actually have less? financial or other incentive to make energy efficiency improvements to, to their properties. Right. So um, basically some of the opponents, and I say that loosely because there wasn't strong opposition to the bill. It actually moved through the House and the Senate pretty swiftly. Opponents are saying that this shift will provide less ability to challenge certain rate increases and less incentive for utilities to control costs. But I would counter that in saying that the way that the utility sort of works is that they have to, every few years, submit what's called a general rate case. So Pico and Duquesne Light are in the process right now of working with the PUC on this. They submit a 200-page document that says, this is our roadmap for the next 5, 10 years. These are the largest like um, capital-intensive infrastructure projects we plan to pursue like FYI, so will you, the Public Utility Commission, please approve these plans so we have guaranteed certainty for our shareholders that we will invest in something and we will get a rate of return. Um, it can be difficult for folks who don't work in the space to understand that these changes, just because there's a rate increase, 
it doesn't mean that it's bad or that it's unwarranted. Um, the way to think about it is utilities work with customer classes. So we, as citizens at our homes, we're part of the residential customer class. But then businesses are in commercial customer class and large manufacturers are in the industrial customer class. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about rate increases, we do want to have a sensitivity to the fact that these things are elastic and inelastic, right? People need lights on. They need natural gas. They need electricity to be able to take care of their families, cook their food, stay warm in the winter, etc. So there's a sensitivity, and this is what the Office of the Consumer Advocate, which every state has, is thinking about. Will these changes um, affect negatively or disproportionately those customers that have a very fixed budget, and if they had an increase in their electricity bill, would it create a situation where they're not able to buy food for their family or in a worst case scenario, they can't pay their bills and the utility shuts off their um, electricity? Now, there are safeguards in place where that doesn't happen all that often, but that's kind of the fear, right? And so when we talk about opponents to the bill, what's going on there is that you have parties who are solely dedicated to the interests of low-income customers being able to keep the lights on, right? Yeah. So while, of course, they could be in favor of something like climate-friendly policies or renewable energy, what they're trying to hedge against is just this blank check that the PUC might give the utilities to say, yeah, go hog wild with renewable energy, and in fact, it would negatively impact those customers that have a sensitivity to the price point. That's not what is happening, but that's the context for understanding someone saying, hey, is this going to um, be a problem as far as rate increases are concerned? So, but it seems like it could be sort of a two-pronged concern, and tell me if I'm way off base here, yeah. but, you know, so there, on the one hand, there is the just the bottom line financial impact on people's ability to pay their bills. Correct. And low-income customers in particular. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there's a sort of common sense, market-driven phenomenon of people taking steps to reduce their energy usage because they want to save money. Right. Right. So is that diminished at all potentially by this? Um, I would say it's not. If, if anything, for the latter, for customers who are interested in having that energy efficient home and they're saving money or, you know, they have the newest smart thermostat and they're just like tech nerds who love the fact that all of this stuff is connected now. This bill is going to do great things for those types of customers, right? Because the utility will now be incentivized to pursue policies, programs, rebates that have a end-use customer-facing win, right? You're going to get more money off your energy-efficient refrigerator. You're going to get money for maybe participating in a, what's called a demand response program. Um, so really what we have to pay more attention to is certainly legislation like this, and it is a win, um, but when utilities do go through the process of submitting, again, that rate case like Duquesne Light just has, that's where we want to pay special attention. What's in the footnotes? What are they asking us as customers known as rate payers to cover? So when something is, again, wonky term, rate-based, that means the utility is saying, we want to spend money that we are going to then charge back to all of our customers. So the industrial customers, the co commercial customers, the residents. And what we want to have a sensitivity and awareness towards is that what's known as a fixed charge, so 
irrespective of um, your energy usage, you would see an increase. So in those general rate case documents, if the utility is suggesting we want to increase the fixed charge for residential customers, that's where we want to pay close attention because that could negatively affect customers that you know have a very tight budget. This bill, as we said earlier, is taking the handcuffs off of utilities. It's in- encouraging them to be innovative. It's encouraging them to be smart. And I think ultimately is going to be a benefit to all customers in Pennsylvania. Okay, so if we're encouraging utilities to be more forward-thinking mm-hmm. and to, to take some risks knowing that they have a little bit more security to do so. Right. Uh, I mean, what reason is there to think that this will actually happen? Is there a requirement in the law that a certain amount has to be reinvested in, like renewables or whatever? Right. Or, or do you expect them to do that voluntarily in their own self-interest? Or what's what's going to happen? We expect them to do it voluntarily simply because if the utility business model has been we'll sell electrons and because people need and demand energy, we're able to make money. But because um, uh, washing machines and refrigerators and equipment is getting more energy efficient and people are able to now generate their own electricity on their property or participate in something called community solar, Mm -hmm. there's a real question, a real reflection happening within utilities saying, how do we stay relevant? Now, the whole rhetoric around utilities going away um, tends to gloss over the fact that utilities run and um, keep up transmission and distribution lines, right? So electrons have to travel across these lines, and those lines are not going away anytime soon. So utilities are going to be around. But they want to remain relevant. They're used to being considered important. And so they're trying to think, you know, how do we – where's our place in this new clean energy economy? And that might be electric vehicles, right? So that's why we have things like House Bill 1446 and and other initiatives where utilities are proactively saying, hey, we want to be a part of the electric vehicle conversation. So that touches on this bill in that it's encouraging the utilities to stop obsessing about selling electrons and start really understanding their role within healthy, safe, climate-friendly communities, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, you know... It was really nicely put in a blog recently, but utilities come in all different stripes, colors. They have different priorities. And so what this is doing is it's sort of saying, utilities, we know that you have a lot of challenges. You serve different types of populations. You deal with different um, pieces of infrastructure, some of which are aging. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to this. Because there's no one-size-fits-all solution, we, the PUC or the governor, we're not mandating you do certain things. We're not saying oh, you have to do that, though we do have a mandate called an alternative energy portfolio standard. And we can talk about that at different uh-huh. time. Um, but what this is doing is it's, it's again, it's incentivizing that performance piece. But the performance piece in this instance is really being driven by the spirit of innovation, which is going to be a win for Pennsylvania economically and as far as climate change is concerned. Okay, so you mentioned some of these ideas are coming to us by way of Europe or they're being tried out elsewhere. Right. That's um, right. Where does Pennsylvania kind of fit in in the U.S. context? How are other states handling these issues? Does, does this uh, legislation make Pennsylvania a national leader or are we just playing catch up again? Right. It's funny you ask that question because um, in an energy article a few weeks ago – so let me back up quickly. So this is a piece of legislation that will be signed by the governor um, in, a, in a few days from now. And it's um, a legislative um, alternative rate-making strategy. 
In addition to that piece of legislation, we also now at the Public Utilities Commission, um, what's known as a docket, have a have a docket that is complementary to this. It's an alternative rate-making docket. That simply means that the commissioners on the Public Utility Commission have said, hey, we're interested in this idea, so we're going to open up a docket so we, interested parties, can have a conversation. Um, and when that docket opened a few weeks ago, National news coverage said, hey, Pennsylvania has its own REV proceeding. And what REV is, it's very specific. It's New York State um, almost eight years ago opened a docket called the Reforming Our Energy Vision. So REV, REV. And basically that docket said, hey, we want to transform New York's grid system so it's super clean, it's super renewable energy friendly, etc." So New York did that, and then Massachusetts did that, California did that. So um, sort of quickly, energy nerds will say, oh, um, Arizona has a rev proceeding now. So when this docket opened and this piece of legislation passed, nationally people started saying, hey, Pennsylvania has a rev proceeding now. That's really exciting because we thought maybe they're not interested in these things. So are we at the leading edge of this nationally? No, we are not. The leading states are Hawaii, California, Massachusetts, New York, and to a lesser extent, Minnesota and Illinois. That being said, Pennsylvania isn't that far behind, which is exciting for people in Pennsylvania. We're like in that second tranche of early adopters. And if we keep kind of ticking off the checklist like we've been doing, commercial pace, alternative rate making, electric vehicles, we are going to find that we are kind of at a leading edge where I would say if Pennsylvania continues on this path, some of our neighboring states like Ohio, Tennessee, North Carolina, Florida are going to start to replicate these policies because they're going to say, look, we're not California. We're never going to be California. We can't do this. But if they see a state like Pennsylvania that has a very diverse energy economy pursue these things, it's going to get people's attention nationally. And we're going to start to see states like like a Florida say, hey, we can do this too. And that's a win nationally for climate. And is Pennsylvania potentially more of a tipping point just by virtue of the fact that we produce a lot of energy? Yes. Or we're kind of a- yes. So we're a big deal for, for several reasons. Um, you know, energy is political and we won't get into that, but Pennsylvania is a very diverse state of political interests and, um, you know, clean energy should can succeed in any state, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a, a great thing. Pennsylvania is also a huge state. We're huge. Um, our carbon emissions profile needs a lot of work. So that's why PEC is doing our decarbonization work. But we also are a net exporter of energy, which means that Neighboring states, as well as other countries outside of the United States, are getting, let's say, for example, natural gas that's coming out of the ground in Pennsylvania, and we're exporting it um, to our neighboring states and also abroad because natural gas is in high demand. It's a global commodity, etc. So people pay attention to what is happening in Pennsylvania for a lot of reasons. You know, um, the governor just announced those new methane permits, so we now kind of have a gold standard in place for dealing with methane and so forth as it relates to the natural gas um, life cycle. So this is a really exciting time to be doing clean energy work in Pennsylvania. And for those listening, you know, it's stuff that's not sexy because the headline isn't like Pennsylvania's putting solar on everything. But we're taking the right steps to make this a technical reality and to set it up where this could thrive for the private sector so that it's aligned with market signals. We're not just saying we want to do something 
and no businesses want to do it. Businesses will now come to Pennsylvania, they'll create jobs, and we're gonna make money. And we're going to have a better um, climate economy because of things like this piece of legislation. Alyssa Berger, Senior Energy Policy Advisor for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, heading up our deep decarbonization initiative. Alyssa, thanks. Sure, anytime. You can learn lots more about the alternative rate-making legislation, including tax comments and positions on that and related matters for the state legislature. Uh, That's all on the PEC website. You'll want to check out the policy section. If you haven't already, be sure to familiarize yourself with the PEC Bill Tracker, an excellent resource for staying on top of uh, legislation and policy proposals uh, active or pending in the state legislature uh, relevant to environmental and conservation matters. It's a terrific resource, again, in the policy section at the PEC website. Visit our Facebook page for more on PEC's activities, including a video from the Climax Tunnel and the Red Bank Valley Trails we talked about earlier in this episode. You can find that on our website, too, PECPA.org. That is the place to go for information on everything you hear on this program and uh, all of the activities PEC is involved in statewide. And follow us on Twitter. We're at PECPA. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook as well. Thanks for listening to the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast. If you like what you hear, it would be a tremendous help if you'd uh, say so in a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're finding the show. Ratings and reviews are really uh, an important way for people to discover this program, and they make a big difference. It also helps us make the show better when you provide your feedback. You can do that by sending an email to legacies at pecpa.org. That's legacies, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S, at pecpa.org. That's all for this time. We'll have another episode coming up in two weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.